Welcome to the Primary Source Podcast. My name is Tom Bober, a school librarian in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. This podcast is here to explore the uses of primary sources in K-12 libraries and classrooms. We'll dig into resources and teaching strategies, talk to educators who are utilizing primary sources, and supporters of educators who curate these incredible items and use them in their work. And today we have a really great interview with author Lindsay H. Metcalf. She just recently was on a panel for our Missouri Association of School Librarians Spring Conference, and she was talking about one of her books, Farmers Unite, Planting a Protest for Fair Prices. It was a book that was on my radar. It was a book that I had seen, but it wasn't a book that I had thought about researching and seeing if there were related primary sources, even though I'm sure that there were. And the reason was that the event is relatively current, happened in 1979, and sometimes sources for more current events are a little harder to come by. So it was something that just wasn't on my radar. I had kind of dismissed it and thought that I wasn't going to be able to find anything that was going to really connect and draw me in. But during this panel session, when Lindsay was talking about her book, the reaction from many of the attendees was really promising. And they wanted to share this book with their students, and they were really excited about it, which was great. But it also ended up piquing my interest and just making me wonder just enough if there were some related primary sources that I had to go out there and search. And sure enough, I was able to find some, and I was able to find ones that I got really excited about, which for me is a good sign that I can at least suggest an activity that hopefully teachers and librarians will get get excited about. And as soon as I had that, I knew I wanted to reach out to Lindsay and see if she would join me for an interview here on the Primary Source Podcast, and she graciously agreed to do that. So this is our talk. I hope you enjoy it, and keep an eye open for an accompanying blog post on AASL's Knowledge Quest picture book and primary source blog posts that should be coming out soon. We are here today with author Lindsay Metcalf, and you probably have seen one or more of her books on your shelf or on the bookstore shelf. She is the author of Beatrix Potter, Scientist. She's also the author of No Voice Too Small, 14 Young Americans Making History. But today we are here to talk with her about her book, Farmers Unite, Planting a Protest for Fair Prices. So Lindsay, welcome to the Primary Source Podcast. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, let's go ahead and start off with you telling us all a little bit about Farmers Unite. Absolutely. So this is the book that is probably closest to my heart. I grew up on a farm in Kansas and currently live just a few miles from my family's farm and it's still a working farm. Um, so this book covers the American agriculture movement in the 1970s and 1980s. 
when basically the story starts in 1979 when farmers everywhere are seeing their prices tank. Um, the, the commodity prices have gone down. They're not sure how they're going to stay on their farms. Many people are losing their farms. And so they decide to gather up for a grassroots protest. In 1979, uh, thousands of farmers drove their tractors from points across the country all the way to Washington, DC, where they camped on the National Mall and wanted to make a statement about parity. They were looking for fair prices for their crops. They wanted to be able to make a living off of what they were making. And they thought that they had to make a statement big enough for people to notice. And they also wanted to speak to Congress. So that's, that's the book in a nutshell. It goes through this protest in 1979 where they kind of rankle people in Washington because they're um, blocking traffic, but they stay through a snowstorm and it's, uh, it snows about two feet and shuts down the city. And what are tractors good for if not for plowing snow? Uh, so they kind of get on people's good sides in that way. And then through the course of the 1980s, they're, they're still not getting what they want, but the movement evolves and sparks an idea with Willie Nelson to host Farm Aid, where they um, have this big concert that everyone's familiar with in 1985, draws 80,000 people to Champaign, Illinois, and they raise enough money so that farmers can organize in a more formal way and come up with policy priorities that they can then present to Congress. And that's some of those are what ended the farm crisis toward the end of the 1980s. So this is all things that happened when I was a young child, but I wasn't really aware of what was going on. Um, I knew my parents were having hard times. I knew we didn't have a lot of money, but I didn't know anything about the American agriculture movement. So when I learned about this as an adult, I, I couldn't stop researching and I was really grateful to find primary sources to help me on my way. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about that aspect of the book. So this is one thing that, and you've kind of summarized all this so well, but one thing I found so fascinating about the book was that this doesn't necessarily kind of tie itself up in a bow very nicely, like some stories will, and even some nonfiction stories will, that this protest was really just, as the title says, kind of the planting or the, the seed of something that really comes to fruition much later. And it's laid out really so nicely um, in your book. But as I'm reading it for the, as I was reading it for the first time, I'm wondering, wait a second, this isn't turning out so well. Like the government isn't responding in the way that these farmers initially are hoping for. And then all of a sudden I hit uh, Farm Aid, which was my point of reference that I knew about. Um, and it was, um, and then I started to see some other references that I was aware of as I was, I guess, a teenager. And, and so I, I love to see how you wove all of those pieces together. I want to ask, I know you mentioned your your family's uh, family of farmers that that you had some of these uh, references uh, as a child that you knew something was going on but you didn't exactly know what what ends up becoming the inspiration for you to actually turn this into a picture book. 
That is a great question. And I have a very specific moment in time that inspired the book, which it doesn't always happen for other books. A lot of times I'll be thinking about things in a nebulous way and it takes me a long time to figure out what I wanna write. But this one, uh, there was an event in my hometown of Concordia, Kansas. And I did not attend this year that it happened, but um, my dad did. And he sent me a photograph via text of this tractor. It's an old tractor, probably from the 50s, maybe 60s. But on the back end, it had a giant sign that said Washington DC or busted. This person had brought the tractor to the event. And I just could not reconcile in my mind why this tractor would be going to Washington DC from Kansas, because I knew that the owner of the tractor lived in my hometown as well. So that led me on a Google search. Actually, first thing I did was ask my dad, what is this? And he said, well, I think there was some kind of protest. So then I go into a Google search, find the American agriculture movement. And luckily a library here in Kansas, uh, the Kinsley Library had done a series of oral histories with some local farmers uh, several years earlier. And they talked about their travel to DC. They had gone 15 miles an hour for a couple of weeks in ice and snow. And they had diaries that they had posted along with these. And they had um, some original speeches that had been typed on a typewriter and scanned in. So there was this wealth of information to really whet my interest. And it was a perfect jumping off point because I saw the purpose of the protest. I saw the details through the eyes of the people who attended. I saw that first. And then I could go into um, newspaper archives and find more information through, through what happened day to day and kind of verify what people were saying in their, their memories and you know, kind of check things against each other. Because the thing about the American agriculture movement is that there are not a lot of secondary sources available on this topic. Um, after I read those oral histories and did an initial Google search or initial newspaper archive search, um, I found a lot of newspaper articles and a lot of day-to-day -day stuff, but I just couldn't find very many secondary sources to tie it all together. Um, there was one self-published book that was pretty good. Um, very vivid details. And I was able to use that to check against the newspapers. And then there was a, like a dissertation that had been written in the 1980s or maybe 1990 that I found at a local university library. But yeah, there wasn't a lot of secondary sources to help me piece together. So I love research and I love um, going down rabbit holes that take me really deep. So this was a really fun book for me, especially with the personal connection. So we have these these newspaper articles that you're finding. You're finding these oral histories, which I will talk about in a minute because you share some of these on your on your website. I'm guessing these are some of the same ones, possibly that you they initially. Are the found. They are the yeah, same I ones. I linked to the library's page. Okay, yeah. those were, I think, just amazing. From again that storytelling perspective of what was it like? What was those, their perspectives, I think were wonderful. Um, 
talk a little bit about if there are any other sources or any other ways that you found sources, but also this idea of how those sources really impacted and shaped your understanding of the protest itself. Yeah, that's a really interesting question because, and like I said, I was glad that I had listened to the oral histories first because I got the farmer's perspective. The difference between their perspective and the media's perspective of the day was that the farmers thought we have a story to tell. We wanna make sure that people understand where their food's coming from because we're afraid that if our farms are gone, people around this country won't be able to eat. I mean, they saw it as this dire situation that affected everyone. But if you read the newspaper articles, it's all about traffic jams. We couldn't get to work. They're tearing up the mall. These tractors are on the mall and they're making ruts and it's muddy. And so there was this disconnect um, and, and the farmers of the day didn't feel like their story was getting told. So they went home disappointed. And, and I'm, I'm really glad that I was able to hear their oral histories so that I could see their, their heart and their passion, which really aligned with my experience growing up on a farm and, and knowing my family and people in my community and, and where they're coming from. So I was glad that I had that um, to piece both sides of it together. Um, as far as other sources that I found, I originally wrote this with the idea that it would be an illustrated picture book. I had been working on other picture books and, and that was kind of the path that I wanted, uh, I saw myself taking. And then we got an offer from the venerable Carolyn Yoder at Calkins Creek, who's won all kinds of nonfiction awards for her books. And I was so excited because I knew that if anybody could understand what I was trying to do, it would be her. But she, she had done a quick search and found photographs of the protest. And she said, I want this to be photo illustrated. There are such great photographs available. Can you find them? <laughs> and I had a panic and thought, I don't know, because the story has taken so many different forms. I went from writing about a movement with the idea of these tractors as the kind of main character. And then people told me I needed a main character. So I found one person to follow through the story, but in the back of my mind, it didn't feel right because it was a grassroots, grassroots movement. So she acquired the story when it was featuring this one person. And my panic was that I wouldn't find enough photographs featuring him. So back and forth, we went and uh, decided to, to feature the protest as a whole. And there were such rich photographs available via the Smithsonian Institution archives and the Library of Congress had a few, but I did a lot of digging to find photographs that matched each scene and ended up going back to the farmers themselves in interviews and um, finding photographs that they had posted on YouTube, but then having to discover the original source of each photograph. Um, one in particular that was challenging was this beautiful shot above the Lincoln Memorial where you have about 250 tractors parked there, ringing the memorial, they're in the snow. And I just knew that this had to be in the book because there's a scene that talks about this moment, but nobody knew where the photograph was from. 
Farmers had used it in their YouTube videos, series of photographs. They didn't know it, where it was from. Um, I found a, an archive in Texas that also had the photograph, but they didn't know the origin of it. So finally someone said, well, maybe it was, you know, it's in the airspace of the Lincoln Memorial. So probably the only entity that could take that picture is the Capitol Police. So on a whim, I contacted the Capitol Police and that was where it was from. And they said, it's public domain and you can have it. So that was fortunate. And another, another great source of um, images was this museum in Lubbock, Texas called the FiberMax Discovery Center. They had all of the protest buttons that the farmers had made and collected, which really shows the personality of the movement. Um, and they, they allowed me to use them in the book for free. So yeah, lots of wonderful primary sources. And, and it was my really first foray into using images as primary sources to help me tell the story. I, usually one question that I ask is, is how readers are going to see the primary sources that you utilize to kind of create your story. But I, it's really, as you mentioned, one of them is, is directly kind of staring you in the face every time you turn the page with this great photography. Um, and one thing I love that you just mentioned is this idea that, well, let me ask you this first. Did, were you doing some of these page layouts then? Were you matching the photographs with the text? Were you um, the one that was taking care of that? Because obviously if you have an illustrated text and you're not the illustrator, that's their, their task to take on. So were, it sounds like you were kind of curating these, these photographs with your written story already in mind. I was. Um, I don't know that that was what they planned on initially, but I knew that I wanted the, the text and the images to work together in a seamless way. So I didn't want a whole bunch of pictures of just tractors, and I didn't want a whole bunch of pictures of people just gathered in a, in a protest. I wanted it to flow with the text as a narrative. And so I found hundreds of photographs that could work in the book. But what I ended up doing was puzzling out, you know, which one works with each spread that I've, I've envisioned in my mind. And I ended up having probably two or three photographs that might work for each spread and then worked with my editor to narrow down, but also had to fit within a budget because when you use other people's photographs, often they charge permission fees. And these can range from, you know, lower amounts. Uh, in the case of the, the protest buttons, the, the museum allowed us to use these for free. But if you go with uh, professionally curated archives like Getty Images or Associated Press, they can range in the hundreds of dollars. Um, one image, the cover image uh, was something like $800. So that can break a budget really quickly. And there was one entity that I had wrongly assumed was going to be a low cost source of images and it ended up being very astronomical. So I had to recalibrate um, sort of toward the end of me finding all these photographs. Uh, but it was an it was a interesting puzzle and 
I did come in very close to the budget that my publisher gave me. <laughs> so I was really proud of myself on my first foray into um, photo curation that I was able to come in at budget. And I, I feel like the photographs that came into the book are just beautiful. And um, I'm really proud of the way it turned out. I was just going to say, I feel like one of the most powerful photographs or the one that kind of made me just stop and, and take this closer look was the one of the tractor burning on the mall. And I think you just with before you even read the text, of course, you're drawn to that photograph. And I'm at that moment just realizing how serious this is for all of these farmers, if they're willing to take that action. Uh, that was, and I know in the text it reads it's an older tractor, but still that just to take that action, uh, it really comes through in, in the source uh, photography that you've, that you've uh, pulled together for that one. Thank you. And I like including that, even though it's a book for young people, it shows that sometimes when you have such emotion behind a collective action, it can tend to get out of control sometimes. And that doesn't mean it represents the attitudes of everyone who's there. Um, they did have to kind of rein things in because people were, you know, upset. At, one thing I'm leaving out of this discussion is that after they arrived in DC and they'd clogged all the traffic, um, the DC police literally corralled the farmers on the mall using all of the buses and um, police cars and every city vehicle they could find. They lined them up around the mall and literally corralled the farmers in this space. So people got frustrated and they were kind of, there were a couple people kind of driving their tractors up onto, you know, monuments on, onto a set of stairs nearby. Um, there was one that actually drove into the reflecting pool. So that reflected negatively on the farmers when they first arrived because people were frustrated and um, they felt like they weren't able to do what they came to do, which was these tractor cades, which are basically like tractor parades. They wanted to just be visible and they felt like they weren't going to be seen if they were stuck here. So they had to recalibrate. They had to rein people in and make sure that they're not um, sending the wrong message to the American people. And, and I thought that was important to include because that does happen a lot with various protests. Things do get out of control sometimes um, with collective action. I think too, to your point, so much of this story to me became about perspectives and you've spoken a bit towards that, but this idea that you referenced too, that the farmers had this kind of grand big story that they wanted to tell there's there's kind of this 10,000 foot view of the role of farmers in the United States and if they can't function by getting fair prices then it has this amazing ripple effect and then there's a line that you have early on when the farmers are coming into DC that uh one person lost their vote because it made him an hour late to work and and so that that short term impact versus that big kind of uh, giant effect. And then I love how that was kind of countered towards later on in the book with that snowstorm that you mentioned that they kind of the farmers were able to turn the tides of public opinion by these small little in the moment acts of pulling people, pulling cars out of the snow, getting um, 
doctors and nurses to work, those types of things. Um, that that idea of messaging and perspective was really front and center throughout this story. Yeah, and one of the other reasons I wanted to do the book is because things change for them in a way, but it really, their, their position in the 70s and 80s is similar to what happens to farms now. Um, we see fewer and fewer people working the land. Um, my family, we live here in Kansas and Kansas is known for wheat, right? We've always grown wheat since I was little and wheat prices are one example of how the system is still broken. Um, my, my family decided for the first time last year not to grow any wheat at all. And it doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but they're not the only ones and people have to go where they can make a living. And with climate change, you know, things are changing, but policy also has to change in order to support people who are growing this food. And, and, and so I thought it's a really complicated story to bring to young people, but at the same time, everybody eats, right? And young people grow into voting adults who need to know about what, what people who grow their food experience so that they can support policies that work for everyone, you know, support people running for Congress um, who are going to support people who farm. So yeah, I, I do think it's an important story for young people to read, even though it's, it's on the, when I describe it, it sounds almost obtuse, <laughs> but it is, uh, it is, I think an engaging narrative and I couldn't stop researching it. I think to the piece that you just mentioned about the kind of impact of today, of course, there's the the idea of protest, I think that we can relate to and connect to today. But the other piece that you men mentioned about farmers, and you've got some really wonderful back matter, I just want to mention one little piece of it that I was really struck by. And that was um, where you had US farm prices through the years where you look at prices um, that farmers would receive for uh, bushels of wheat or an average yield for an acre or, and then also looking at expenses of, for example, a, a combine harvester, those are really revealing. And so you see it for the seventies, then you see it around 2012, which was a high point in um, the price that farmers would receive. But then you see it in 2019 where that price has then dropped back down in some cases, very close to the 1974 prices. Yeah. And no, I, I thought that was really important to include because as I was writing the story, this is what was in my mind. You know, these prices that the farmers are so upset about during the time of this protest, I'm thinking, this is about like today. <laughs> and yet so many things have also changed. Expenses have gone so far up, but there are also different factors that are, are completely different. In the time of the protest, um, interest prices were sky high. And that was one factor in them losing their farms. But also they didn't have to pay five or $600,000 for a combine harvester in order to you know, harvest their crops. So yeah, I, it's, it's interesting. And people like to complain about the farm bill and all of the subsidies that go to people who grow our food. But I feel like 
and I'm not saying the farm bill is perfect. I am not an expert on the farm bill, but it's important to know all of the factors that go into it before you start having opinions on, on the outcome. So this book is just a small, small window into what farmers experience, but it's still definitely relevant today. Let me give one more, one, one last primary source shout out, if I can, to these um, oral histories that you have and that you have available on your website, along with many other primary source resources. Um, they are, first of all, they come across to me as someone who is in the suburbs, but is also from the Midwest, and I can drive a, less than 10 minutes and be surrounded by cornfields. And so I have interactions with people who grew up on farms or are farmers on a, on a smaller scale. These come across to me as so authentic. Uh, and just them, as you mentioned, just trying to tell their story that was that took place uh, in the 70s here. That, but I, it made me wonder, too, when they rung so true to me, if we would show them to our students who don't have any of that experience, that perspective again that we're sharing that students may not have any kind of interaction with anyone who's ever even stepped foot on a farm possibly this would be a, a wonderful resource for them so i thank you for for sharing those and making your them available on your website we'll make sure your website is lindsayhmetcalf.com that's it, lindsay with an a and metcalf with no e on the end and we'll make sure to put it into the show notes so it's easy to get to that from there as well. Lindsay, I have to thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to chat with us about Farmers Unite planting a protest for fair prices and talking about the primary sources that went into making that story. Lindsay, thank you so much. Thank you. It was such a wonderful opportunity and I appreciate the invite. Mm -hmm.